This song says, uh, no matter who you are, no matter where you go in your life, at some point you're going to need somebody to stand by you. This is Leslie Gist, and you listen to the Antique E-Show. Tonight we have a great show and a very special guest. Her name is Miss Jean Libby. She Hello, is... Leslie. How are you? Oh, just fine. Just fine. So glad to hear you. Right, right. We You have a lot of exciting things going on this weekend. Can you introduce yourself to the audience and just tell them uh, about this weekend and what's so exciting about this weekend? Well, it's the it's the upcoming weekend that's that's going to happen the uh, the the following weekend, and uh, it's the uh, 150th anniversary of the John Brown raid in in Harper's Ferry, and uh, so that's been something I've been studying for a long time, and I'm just really happy to be a part of it. Can you just give the audience a brief synopsis of your work? Okay, well, I, I started in, uh, in uh, 1979. I published a book called Black Voices from Harper's Ferry, which was based on oral history interviews of people in Harper's Ferry who I thought might have some kind of uh, memory 
from their ancestors about uh, the African-American participation in the raid. And uh, the way that I did that was uh, I visited churches, and uh, I did this the year before. And um, you understand I'm, I'm white, and so I go to the black churches, and I stand up and I say I'm looking for stories about John Brown. And what the people did was they invited me to come back, and they invited me to stay in a home with them, you know, in, in their homes and taking care of me. I brought a daughter with me, a 14-year-old daughter. And therefore, I had a base uh, to work from in, in doing the research. And so that was the beginning of, of my research. It wasn't only oral history. It was documentation. And by having this base and the faith of the people in the community, I was able to, to keep on going. And so what I did after that, well, actually, during that time, I found a primary source, a written primary source by a black minister who had been suspected of being with John Brown. And he had to get out of town real fast, uh, or they would have brought him to Virginia and put him in jail, because his name was in John Brown's pocket as somebody who was trustworthy. So... When I found this, it was, um, it, it's like no other kind of feeling. There's something that's not known, and it's in writing, and it's from the time. And so I hadn't been to school yet, hadn't been to university. I had been, a, a, you know, a mother and uh, taking care of my kids. That was what you, what you did in, in that day. So then um, I, I went to school after that to try to understand Reverend Thomas Henry. Okay, so now Reverend Thomas Henry, he wrote, you, you said he wrote something? Yes. He was suspected of being in conspiracy with John Brown. And so when they found the carpet bag with all his letters over at the Kennedy Farm, and they found, you know, they started going through the letters and this and that, and they found his name, Reverend Thomas Henry, uh, that he was a trustworthy colored man. And uh, it had been published before, not his words, but the fact that he was in the letter had been published by Professor Benjamin Quarles. Who was it? You, 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 know, you know Professor Quarles, and you, you know of him. Mm -hmm. And so... He is the, the the black historian uh, who has who has researched so much about a lot of things, but including the John Brown raid. And so I I went to Howard uh, just you know to look in their archives, and I looked up Reverend Thomas Henry, and his his autobiography was right there. So he wasn't lost. We were. Wow, that's that's awesome. Now, what made you become interested in this subject? You know, 1979, there was a lot. wasn't as much as was going on as it was in the 60s. But what prompted you to say, I want to go to these black churches and I want to interview these people? Well, during the 60s, I was involved in, in the civil rights movement 
in in California, and so I uh, I wrote the the periodicals and newsletters and the press releases in that for for CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, and then for our our local branch of the of the NAACP. Okay, okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, our when I say our, our local branch, um, I live um, in, in Palo Alto, California, which is right next to Stanford University. And so Stanford University was sending all these people to the South. And they also had these faculty members uh, and ministers who were attached to the church who were the civil rights activists of the 1960s. And so the branch of the NAACP collected more funds for the national organization than any other branch in the country because people around here, you know, they, they supported civil rights. The history of Stanford, that they would, in, they would get involved in the civil rights movement and start this crusade that you're now involved with and it's continuing all these years later. Well, um... It's uh, it's a it's a private university like like Harvard and certainly a, a, a wealthy university where people who I think it's just a combination of people like the abolitionists in in New England who are inspiring each other and then they began to sponsor people who would go to the South and who would be uh, arrested in the Freedom Rides, so they would be uh, part of these people who were faculty members at Stanford and students at Stanford were going and they were putting their lives on the line with the African Americans in the South in, in the Freedom Movement. And so the more that you know about that and know people, uh, like, you know, like we would have meetings and someone would come who, would, who had been in jail in, in Louisiana, for example, and he would talk about being in jail, and he would talk about being beaten. We became a part of it because then we would sponsor, you know, food drives, clothing drives, uh, uh, assistance to people who were in the South. And the main assistance that was needed was bail money. I see. Yeah. So, so, so you guys are really working in John Brown's spirit at, at on the campus of Stanford University in the 60s. So. Yes, I, w I was part of the movement. But I'm just a housewife. Uh, my my husband had been a librarian at Stanford. By this time, he'd moved to the to the public library. He's a, a reference librarian. So I'm kind of I'm I'm the community, but not not really part of Stanford. Now let's talk about the work of John Brown. Okay, um, his father oh wasn't a minister. He was just uh, uh, an an abolitionist. There were a whole lot of uh, of people who were anti-slavery in the late 1700s, right after the American Revolution, who lived in Connecticut. And they moved together to Ohio. It wasn't Ohio then. You know, it's, 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 it's not even a state yet. And John Brown is five years old. And his father and mother, and he's got an older sister and two younger brothers, so if you can imagine, they moved 400 miles from Connecticut to what is called the Western Reserve, and it's now called Ohio. And they all and was that part of the Northwest Territory? Yes, yes. And so slavery is not allowed there. Right. 
and that's very that's very important in John Brown's history because every time he's doing something and moving forward with his plans and his abolition plans it's in response to slavery becoming more a uh, part of uh le- more legitimate in the United States and specifically in his community well was he being you know ran out of these you know was his family being chased out of uh, Massachusetts because of slavery. No, they, you know, no, like I know no. a lot of Quakers were moving around trying to get away from it. Well, the the abolitionists who came to Ohio were definitely more radical than those who remained, uh, but they weren't chased out. I mean, they were um, definitely the people who stayed behind were the more conservative don't want to rock any boats, and a lot of them making their money on slavery, too, because, you know, they're the ship owners in in New England. They're the, they're the cotton manufacturers. So the people who moved to Ohio are definitely more radical than those, than those who remain. Um, but what they do then is they establish the Underground Railroad in connection with... Uh, with Frederick Douglass and the black abolitionists. And so they're cooperating in, from Ohio, from, uh, you know, from Massachusetts, from New York, and they're cooperating with the, the people who are in the, uh, who are the black abolitionists and, um, and the, the women like Susan B. Anthony and Lucy Stone. They're all working together to help people get out of slavery. Now you know what is what's amazing to me is the fact that you said that they traveled 400 miles from Massachusetts to live in Ohio, a territory deemed um, slave free, slave free, right? Um, because of uh, the founding fathers or the framers of this country, they deemed all new territories would not um, be allowed to have slave slaves in a new territory, so they chose the Northwest Territory as a strategy. And to move 400 miles and then to be able to communicate successfully to other abolitionists all over the country is amazing to me as far as their network ability. You know, we have Skype today, we have YouTube and all sorts of technology, but it seems that today we cannot surpass the technology that they had. Um, oh, you're right. They they had no fax machines. I don't, I don't know how they did it, and they were so successful. But I just wanted to bring that point up, and if you could add to it, you know, just it was amazing how John Brown had all these friends. I think that's really a, a good one, you know, because you, you do have to think about that, um, that the lack of technology at the time and how much they stayed connected to each other. And a lot of it is um, the newspapers. There's uh, Frederick Douglass's The North Star, and he also has Martin Delaney working as an editor of The North Star. And they travel all around talking about anti-slavery and also with subscriptions for their papers. There's The Liberator, which is by William Lloyd Garrison, a, a, a white man. There's more subscribers to the Liberator who are African Americans than there are white people. Wow, I didn't know. And, that. Yeah, I, I was I was amazed at that too. So they're often the uh, the press 
the anti-slavery and uh, and press and the African American press, which is just starting at this time, is so exciting. You know, people are writing and publishing and doing all these things, uh, and so this is often a way that they uh, th- that they communicate together because Douglas and Delaney and people like that are traveling all around all the time. Were they able to take advantage of the physical train and railroad? Because I know the technology helped them move their messages across um, the country. Did that have an important role? Um, I studied recently about Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, and he was a postmaster. Mm -hmm. And that was a very important high-tech position at that time. How influential was the post office and that and connecting people to one another, these newspapers getting. That is is so cool. And just as kind of an aside, uh, John Brown was a postmaster appointed by John Quincy Adams in this little town in Pennsylvania where he lived when he was a a, a younger man. I didn't so, know that. I know. It's, 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 I didn't it's, know that. But I'm not surprised because I, I'm an electronics teacher and I love technology. And I'm looking when I study history, I try to find the parallels and I when I found out that Lincoln was a post uh master general something to that nature I said you know he that was a high tech position at the time and I also read that the anti-slavery um movement used as you said a lot of literature and the uh slave system used to burn down these post offices because they suspected that those messages were being um sent through the post offices it truly means something when you hear how active they literally were with their messages and their networking and taking advantage of technology. And when you said Stanford, Stanford is an icon for technology mm-hmm. at university. But I didn't know that it was part of um, the civil rights movement. Oh yes, very very important part. But but your 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 question about John Brown and the railroads is a super cool one because yes. He's involved in technology. He's involved in going on the railroads. He wants the most modern weapons. He gets the Sharps rifle, which is just being invented, and which is a faster loading rifle. So when he has that weapon with one man, it's the same as having 20 members of his army. People say he was he was crazy because he had such a small army. He had the most modern weapons. He rode the trains, and something else he did, which is in this lovely new book that Alice Kesey McCoy mentioned on on her interview uh, yesterday by Louis DeCaro, and this book talks about how John Brown rode the steamers on the lakes. And so you can go from New York to Ohio in one day because you're crossing the lake on a steamer. You you can't do that now. You can't drive from New York to Ohio in in one day. But they had these uh, uh, steamboats. But I well, I don't know what a steamboat is. What is? Okay, it's um, there's in traveling on the canals, which were built before the railroads. Okay. And and along the lakes, uh, a steamboat is a method of transportation ahead of trains that gets people uh, and goods across the water. 
so it goes from on when the Erie Canal is built, you can take a steamboat, and the steamboat can go across Lake Erie much faster than you can go on a train or by road. And they don't have these steamboats anymore because after trains came, and then especially after automobiles came, uh, the steamboats were uh, antiquated. They don't carry that many people. Trains carry many, many more people. And But at John Brown's time, he's using them. Wow. And, and so what Lou DeCaro has done that is so you know, that is so lovely, is he studied the schedules, and he's found that this is where John Brown writes his letters. He's getting on the steamboat, and he's going on his trip over from Ohio to New York or New York to Ohio, and he can sit down at his ease and write a letter. And that's where he did a lot of his uh, of his work. And then as soon as the trains come in, he's using them too. Because um, it was necessary to get food with guns during uh, the late 18th century and early 19th century, for ordinary people to get food, you had to shoot it. Okay. There's not, you know, there's not refrigerated cars. There's not processors. You provide the food for your family, and so yes, ordinary people had uh, had guns. They had to. Not only for protection, but but for food. Um, but this is a big issue with with John Brown because he's a weapons man. Okay. There were many abolitionists who were pacifists and nonviolent. Uh, is that another word for pacifist? Yes. Yes. Uh, and uh, who believed that uh, that because John Brown advocated um, an attack, a physical attack on the slave power with guns, with arms, that he has his solution uh, to the uh, problem of slavery and to get rid of it is with arms. And so that's a big division in, uh, in, in the abolitionists, and there's something really big that changes that. Yesterday I interviewed your dear friend. Yeah, Alice uh, Kesey McCoy. Yeah, I would never remember Alice yet. Alice <laughs> talked about... His involvement, John Brown's involvement, the bloody Kansas or bleedy Kansas. That's exactly what I was saying. Okay. It's not small. It's not small. It's the beginning of the Civil War. And this is also what makes abolitionists decide whether or not uh, it is right to use arms. Because what happens in Kansas is the uh, United States government passes a law that says that the new territories can vote, the people in the new territories uh, can vote whether or not slavery is legal. This is in 1854. This is after they've passed other things, you know, like the fugitive slave law that says that a slaveholder can pursue someone who is enslaved anywhere in the United States and the territories. All he has to do is get a warrant from a southern judge or a southern sheriff, and he can go anywhere he wants to in the territorial United States, whether they're slave or free, to pursue uh, the people they call fugitives and we call freedom seekers. So this is what's shitting up the um, the conflict in the United States. And John Brown is for defense in the federal government. The slave 
the slave power wanted to keep control of the federal government, and they were able to gain control. It had been balanced before. There was compromise and compromise, but it was pretty well balanced. And then, beginning in 1850, the balance shifts to the slave power having the federal control. What did the Underground Railroad have an effect on on the slavers uh, making decisions to reverse all of these laws and to go against the Constitution? Weren't they suffering from all the um, uh, freedom seekers escaping? Were they not being hurt financially? And, and they passed this fugitive slave um, law as a, a way to go back and repossess, quote, did what they thought of as their property because they were losing losing um, slaves by the, the hundreds of thousands. Certainly. In fact, the governor of Virginia uh, states this. He says, you know, the the whole state of Virginia is just like a, a sieve, you know, that you that you pour your your water through. People are are escaping so much, and and if only they have to go to Ohio and they're free, then of course more will go. So they they pass the law that says, well, you can follow people to Ohio and you can arrest them, and if you help them, the people who help them are liable for arrest and fines too. And this gets those Yankees mad. Wasn't there a lot of physical altercations yes. as a result of the um, Southerners, the slavers coming into the North and trying to kidnap people they deemed um, fugitives? You bet. You bet. And that's that's the history. I mean, that's the history that's so exciting. And John Brown is involved with these people who are doing the physical rescues. Harriet Tubman, he's with her. And uh, he looks for her. He seeks her out. Uh, the people who are called his secret six, the reason he finds them is they've been involved in slave rescues. Oh, it's it's such an exciting history. Uh, and, and we have it. You know, this is the history of our country. Uh, for a town to help someone, um, of course, uh, the people who are doing the rescuing uh, can't succeed unless the whole town is assisting, unless they won't be stopped by other authorities or by people saying, you know, it, it has to be everybody. So one of those towns was Oberlin, Ohio, who will participate all together in a rescue. Uh, Syracuse, New York is another. There are there are a great many, and there are more in, in the north. Detroit, oh, what Detroit does is incredible. Um, there's a whole group called the African Mysteries. Um, the African Mysteries? African Mysteries. And they are the Underground Railroad in Detroit. Uh, and Detroit is very important because if you get there, uh, it's real easy to get across to Canada. So um, John Brown and others are involved in making the routes going west so that they can get people to to Detroit, uh, and you can't even a big place like Detroit. You you can't succeed unless there's a lot of people in the town in the city uh, that you can count on not to turn you in, not to call uh, authorities, and you have to be able to count on the authorities too. Um, there's towns in Iowa. Uh, Grinnell, Iowa, where there's a university now, 
and the whole town declares, you know, this is uh, this is a safe place for you to come. Uh, we're not going to help slave catchers. When we talk about these towns getting involved, and, and I think it's a great segue um, from John Brown, where we see a man, this one individual, um, you know, leading a raid. Then we have Harriet Tubman, and we have you know a sprinkle of other abolitionists. Now, when these uprisings um, occurred. Did they receive national attention legally? Did that ever happen in history as far as your studies? Yes, but it's it's the same uh it's the same issue that you brought up at the beginning and that is they didn't have the technology of a national news at that time. There's a lot of newspapers that are being published in one place or another, but they're not. There's no transmission until telegraph, uh, and then trains help this too, because then you can bring the newspapers by train to other to other parts of the country. Uh, but the uh, the the publicity that would be given would be very local. Um, unless there are powerful newspapers such as in New York, the Daily Tribune, and uh, and there are also powerful newspapers who uh, support slavery. Right, right. Now, and what I was trying to uh, draw from you is I know some stories where the governors had to get involved with, um, for instance, in Philadelphia with William Steele, the famous case of Jane Johnson. Um, governors had to get involved in and find peace and a compromise to pay the slaver mm-hmm. and then allow the the uh, freedom seeker to continue on and live um, as a free woman. This is Brenda. How are you doing, Jane? Hey. One of the things that, from my perspective, Jean, was that John Brown actually evolved. And while he did a number of things to help freedom seekers, there was a point where he just wanted to end slavery uh, completely. And to me, that's the significance of Harper's Ferry. Do you see that sort of evolution with this entire group that was at Harper's Ferry? Oh, yes, yes. Because they had all been actively involved in helping people individuals. But it seems like they were frustrated because while they were helping us, the whole institution kept growing. Do you think that the, the bloody Kansas was like one of the, the the straws that broke the camel's back? I know that um, Alice mentioned yesterday that it was so far away from his raid as far as time that it might not have been. But what do you think was one of the things that said, you know, that's enough is enough. This is what we're going to do. Yes, well, I'd, I'd like to say a, a little more to Brenda here because that's a really important point. Okay. Um, now, your your relative, Brenda, is John Copeland. Yes. And he was involved in the rescue of John Price in Oberlin. Yes. And so John Brown and his men, his you know, the people who are working with him, go to search him out because they've heard of him, and they know, in fact, they find him in jail. Uh, so they go to deliberately to the people like John Copeland, who are who have been active in, in slave rescues, 
and that's another way that uh, the people are are coming together. He uh, he goes to uh, deliberately to Reverend Jeremiah Logan, uh, for example, in Syracuse, who's been active in a slave rescue. He goes there, goes to him, and says, "Hey, would you, you know, what do you think of this? Would you be a part of this uh, of, of of this movement?" So it's the whole rescuing of people of the freedom seekers, uh, and and he just he goes after them. He finds them. So you, they were the um, the opposite of what you would call the bounty hunters. So the slavers were organized, and they had bounty hunters to go look for um, fugitives. And on the opposite side, we had uh, people like John Brown and John Copeland, who had a reputation to go out and seek someone who had been kidnapped. Is that what I'm hearing? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so this was a, uh, these people were on a mission. This is what they did. Right. Uh, well, in it. fact, a lot of the people who, I believe it was four or five of the men who fought at Harper's Ferry actually fought with John Brown in Kansas. Oh, yes. Could you yes. go into that? In details, because that is an exciting story to me. When you say, see, I thought Kansas, I thought it just erupted, you know. I didn't know this was, that it was an organized battle until yesterday when I was talking to Alice. So could you ladies go into how this uh, bloody Kansas came about and how John Brown and, and John Copeland got involved? Now, for um, for Kansas, first we have the, the governmental act. Uh, which is throwing out the ordinance that says there can't be any slavery in the Northwest Territory. And so this governmental act uh, says that the people who settle in Kansas and Nebraska will be able to vote whether or not the state is slave or free. Disregarding the ordinance, which was the Northwest Ordinance, which was written in the 1700s. And disregarding the Missouri Compromise, of 1820, which said that states could not be admitted, new states could not be admitted from the territories unless it was balanced one slave and one free. Okay. So they're, dis- they're, they're, they're throwing all, all of that out. And so the war that starts is that uh, people come to settle in Kansas who will want to vote uh, not to have slavery in the state, and there are more people, and there are also people who will come, who will want to vote to have slavery in the state. Is that their sole purpose of moving to that area? Yes. Was to vote? Yes, and uh, and to settle a new place. To, um, I mean, it's it's a, in, it's a new world. This is this is pioneering, but it's very difficult to do. And uh, I mean, the place is cold. They've got to build everything. Uh, they've got to start growing their crops, um, and the only way that they can do it is to have assistance from home. Now, the people who are in support of slavery don't come in such numbers. What they do is they send uh, people called the border ruffians, who are actually mob, um, and they go to where the election is held, and they uh, tear up the ballot boxes, they have murdered uh, people who are the settlers coming in to vote for a free state. And there's just chaos uh, what's going on. John Brown 
is the first person to counter uh, the terrorism that's being inflicted by the Missourians. Order uh, ruffians. Yeah, the ruffians. They are they are from Missouri. In fact, they're led by a former senator named David Atchison. And so they come across in armed groups. Missouri's right next door to Kansas. They can come across. They can go back. And um, they have also the settlers who are there um, are doing murder, ambush murder of the free state settlers. And they are also going to attack the town of Lawrence, which is where many of the free state settlers have come. So John Brown's uh, grown children, uh, about four of his sons and their wives and their families, are these settlers, some of these settlers, in 1854. Oh, I didn't know that. Go ahead. Yeah, so that's, that's, what, that's why he comes. They write him in 1855. He's back in New York in North Elba, you know, with his family there. And they write him and they said... Uh, we need guns because these people are shooting us. And so he comes with the guns himself, and he is willing to um, both defend against those who would come, and they do. They, I mean, they come in and they they break up the houses, they break up, the, they have little stores started, and they and the ruffians and the pro-slavery people come in, and they have they have the law behind them. Because when the election came, that's called the bogus election, um, it was made, a constitution was made that said you cannot even speak against slavery in Kansas. It's a crime. Wow. It's, this is going to be a slave state. What role did Charles Sumner play in this entire um, debacle of an election? You know, what happened in Congress when this was going on? How did Congress respond? Well, there begins to be debates uh, about, you know, what's happening uh, because of the uh, of, of the election, you know, the, the ruffians coming across and taking over the elections and killing people and this and that. And so Charles Sumner, who is the senator from Massachusetts, has a speech called The Crime Against Kansas. And he actually publishes this speech before he speaks it in on the floor of Congress. And it's a four-hours-long speech, if you can imagine, in which he's stating all of these things that have happened and how the, uh, the Kansas-Nebraska Act is not working and that there is a crime against Kansas. And there's a, uh, a congressman from South Carolina who is offended by this speech. And uh, the reason he's offended is because Sumner uh, speaks personally about some of the supporters of the, uh, of, of the slaveocracy in Congress. And so he goes in after Congress has adjourned, after Sumner has made his speech, and he beats him with, to unconsciousness with a, with a cane that he is especially made for this. And uh, so Sumner is uh, brought to the hospital, and he's very near death. And this all happens at the same time that the Missourians, under uh, a, a former senator, David Atchison, who's been brought out of office, are attacking 
Lawrence. So if you're on the side of the abolitionists, which I am, I think these two events are coinciding. I think that the Missourians know that this attack is going to be made on Sumner. Mm -hmm. They certainly know about the speech because he's published it ahead of time. And so they're, they're coordinating their move, which is to go in and take over the town of Lawrence. Now, what happens in Lawrence is uh, very significant in relation to John Brown. He is a captain of a militia company, so, you know, for, for self-defense of the various communities. And they know that the Missourians are coming to Lawrence. And so they're getting their, their group together, their rifle company, and they're riding uh, to the defense of Lawrence, which is a, a few miles away. And then the words come, the word comes, that the town fathers, the free state settlers of Lawrence, have decided to surrender without fighting so nobody will be killed. This really sets him off. He said, this is not the way to win a war. You fight them. Yeah. So he doesn't, well, he doesn't go, though. He goes down the settlement where where he and uh, and, the, uh, and his sons and some other people live, and he selects, uh, a group of people who have made a written death threat on them. And he and his sons take them out to the creek in the middle of the night, and they kill them by hacking them to death with broadswords. Five people. So, so the people that call John Brown crazy, they really don't know that he was defending his own blood. Right. He's defending himself. He's defending the community. What they say those will what they what they say is that this was random it was not random no. they had made a written death threat he he selected these people now these people hadn't done anything except threaten they were not responsible for the murders that had occurred previously now was his son murdered before or after that incident in Kansas after okay and so um but now, this is, take us to Harper's Ferry. Yes. So after this Lawrence, Kansas um, war, how much longer did it take before the Harper's Ferry incident? Let's see, that's September 1856. It's going to be uh, three years. Because what he does in the meantime is he goes to New England and he um, asks for funds for arms for the settlers of Kansas. He tries to raise funds. And then when the Kansas, Kansas gets settled by the federal government intervening and taking over the government and calling for a new election, and when the new election comes in 1858, um, which is protected by the government, then the Free Staters win. Oh, Okay. So, so Kansas is is, is is settled, and so John Brown wants to move into the South. He wants to bring, as he says uh, at the Battle of Osawatomie, he wants to carry the war into Africa. And so he begins organizing the um, in Canada among uh, African Americans who have settled there. Uh, and including leadership, this is where he gets in touch with Harriet Tubman, with William Howard Day, uh, with William Whipper in Pennsylvania, 
certainly William Still is one of these. This is where he begins his organization um, among African Americans, and that happens in 1858. Now, was he involved with the African American community to that ex- to that extent um, prior to 1858, or this is yes, yes. That's that's one of the biggest things about John Brown is that he was always involved with the African-American community, wherever he was. And it was very significant um, that he does this on a, a social level as well. When people come to his house, they eat dinner with him. He addresses them as Mr. and Mrs. Uh, his children serve them the meals. Now, I was told by Alice that he lived in a black community, that North Elba, New York, was a black community? Yes. It Predominantly was black? Yes. It was founded by Garrett Smith, who had land. He was a wealthy man, and he had land, and he was using this land um, to get a community going of people who had been in slavery and had and were fugitives, plus... Uh, free people to have a cooperative uh, farming area. So uh, most of the people there are black, uh, although there is another a white family uh, nearby that's very significant, the Thompsons, because the Browns and the Thompsons um, intermarry with each other in the, 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 the two white families. And then the Thompsons will also go... Uh, the young members will go to fight in Harper's Ferry, and they die too. Well, one thing that I believe really set John Brown apart from everyone else was that it's to the point you're making, Jean, about he walked the talk, and he truly believed that blacks were his equal, unlike many abolitionists of that time. Well, there were two sets of abolitionists. Do you want to talk about the the ones who wanted to send blacks, they call it the American Colonization Society. I don't know. What do you think about that, Brenda? Well, within the abolitionist movement, there were those who, um, to me, if there were those who would want to send people, send blacks to Africa and settle it that way. But I Now, which blacks? Let's just clarify which blacks the, they want. They didn't want to send all of them, all the blacks. Well, the freed ones. Right, because they deemed them to be the troublemakers, right? No, not necessarily. I think it was a matter that they didn't want to have to deal with that issue. And for me, it's a matter that in this overall scheme of things, you have, um, we can fight for an issue, but not really believe it thoroughly in our heart. And that's what set John Brown apart, because he truly believed Blacks were his equal. Okay, we're down to our last two minutes of this Ooh, show. Okay. So we're going to have to hang up in about two minutes. And you, can you call back because I have another 45-minute show for you guys set. All right. I'm uh, Jean Libby, and my website is alliesforfreedom.org. That's all one word, alliesforfreedom.org. Okay. Uh, any email addresses or same, 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 same deal, editor at alliesforfreedom.org. And your latest book? Ah, John Brown Photochronology. 
All right. And where can they purchase your book? On Amazon. At Amazon. And you'll be speaking where? In uh, uh, in Harper's Ferry. You can get it there, too, you know, okay. at the at the, at the the commemoration. All right. Uh, Ms. Copeland, Ms. John Copeland's ascendant. Brenda Pitts, do you want to give your information? We still have about 35 seconds. 